But allow me to pray, and we're going to continue uh, uh, in our invitation series. So, Father, we thank you uh, that uh, we thank you for moms. We thank you for mother figures in our lives. We uh, we do pray, as as Carrie did, about the uh, the complexities of today, and we pray for comfort. We pray for uh, celebrations. We pray for happiness and joy, and we weep with those who weep, and we, we rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, and we thank you for this day especially. It's in your name we do. Gather and pray. Amen. Uh, the other day I was walking around my house. I tend to get up a little early and I couldn't sleep. And so I was walking around and I noticed that Carrie has decorated our house with pictures. And sometimes Carrie puts things up and I don't even know, realize that she has decorated something. And so I'll walk by and go, oh, there's a new picture there. And I'll say, when did that come up? And she goes, oh, when we moved in two years ago. Oh, okay, great. And so I'm noticing, and I'm walking around with my coffee, and I'm seeing pictures of, uh, of her and I before we were dating. Uh, I had more hair, no beard, and, and uh, we'll see that. Then I look around, and I see a picture of my mom and dad at my brother's wedding. Uh, this was uh, 10 years ago or so. Then I see a picture of uh, my best friend from junior high and I at my wedding. He was my best man. He was my college roommate. We were friends all the way through. And I'm just seeing all these images. I see a picture of my dad. We went sailing one of the last times that he was up here before he passed. And it's a picture of him on the bow of a boat uh, uh, on Puget Sound with the sun going down. It's like he posed. Uh, but it was that, I see that, and I see all of these images. And I start to realize, like, wow, all of these people love me. And it was this, and I don't know why, but they do. And I'm just seeing all of these, these pictures of folks in my life that would say they're with me. They're for me. Uh, they, they love me. They, and, and for whatever reason, but that's what they are. And that's who they are in my life. And I'm walking around and I see pictures of my boys. We have this big movie-sized poster of all of like the Instagram highlights from one year. And it's all on one image. And it's sitting over there. I'm like, those, guys, those little kids, those little boys, my goodness. And I start wondering. Uh, and and, and I, I'm looking at these photos, and I'm realizing that these photos captured just one moment in, in, the, in time, right? That's what photographs do, unless it's a movie, and that's like a whole series of moments. But uh, this was profound thoughts at 5 a.m. But, uh, but I'm realizing, like, I looked at the picture of, of my mom and dad at my brother's wedding, and I remember all of the conversation that happened around that moment. My mom was annoyed that we wanted to take a picture, and so she stood there with her little pout that she does. I get it too. Uh, but, and then they took a picture. I remember the next picture that we took with my brothers is, is my sister trying to push me down because she's upset that she's the oldest and shortest and I'm the youngest and tallest. And so she's trying to control my height. Like she tries to control everything. And so, but I'm, I'm remembering all of these things. I looked at an old picture of my soccer team in college and everyone was like, I remember the conversation going around there of, Hey, are we tough guy in this or are we smiling? You know, the thing, hands in front, hands in back, Smile, no smile. There's always one person that smiles, even when you say you're not. And so, but it was all of these moments around them uh, that, that came to life, and it was captured by that one, that one still frame. That frame captures the emotions. And as I looked at these photos, I couldn't help, and I said this, that these are all people in my life close to me that loved me. And then the thought came to my head about the times, and we'll all go through them at some point, uh, the, in which the love that people have for you or your status of loved and accepted is always called into question. The middle school times. 
uh, where you weren't sure where you fit in, the times where you didn't meet the expectation, the times of failure, the time where you lost your job, the time where you made that huge mistake with your money, the relationship missteps, the, the boundaries that were crossed, the words that were said, uh, the things that you wish you could take back, and all of these things, uh, I, I started to wonder, when those happened back then, what would it have been like to fast forward in time to see that regardless of all of those things, I was still loved? How in the moments where I'm tempted to forget how loved I am, where I begin to see how, or I begin to believe that I am actually unlovable. Because in many ways, we forget just how hard or just how loved we are by our God. And when we do, our life turns into an identity crisis. What we start to do is we start to, uh, instead of resting in our position as being fully loved and fully accepted, we begin to thrive or to, to strive and work in order to be loved. We begin to take on different identities so people will, get our, people will accept us. But what would happen if, during those unlovable times, you knew at the core of your being that you're in, in the center of your entire identity that you were still loved by every one of those pictures in your life? How would you react to bad news if you knew that no matter what the news came, you were still loved? If you knew that at the core of your being, you, uh, at the core of yourself, you were built and fortifi fortified on the foundation of being loved, what would change about you? Knowing that you were fully loved back when you were dating, or if you are dating, would you have dated differently? In business, knowing that you were fully loved and accepted, would you have taken more chances to be generous? Would you have risked more for a friend if you knew that you had nothing to lose? Would, you, uh, would, would those damaging words that were spoken of you, landed, would they have landed so harshly if you'd known that those are just words and they don't affect who you are? What I want to get at today here is the same thing I think Paul is trying to get at as we look in the book of Ephesians. Uh, for a while, and we're going to be in Ephesians, if you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul is trying to get to, in these verses that we'll be reading today, in the two chapters leading up to this, in Ephesians 1 and 2, he's trying to get to this point. He's trying to show us who we really are, that in Christ, you and I are secure, we're accepted, we're loved, and we're whole, and, we're whole. and that is our primary identity. We attach other things to that in order to feel like we're accepted and whole. But Paul is saying you are those things before you try and accept identity. You are already accepted. And because of this, we have the ability to live in that reality of being whole, loved, and accepted right now. And so Paul is hoping to instill this truth into the Ephesian church because when the church, and you and I make up the church, when we understand this, our lives will be forever changed. So he's recapping for us in chapter 3 what he said in chapters 1 and 2. And he wants us to get uh, three themes of our identity moving forward with this. First theme that we have is there's a mystery to the love that is for us. The second is that there is a foundation for this love. And the third is that there is an immeasurability. And I had to pause to say that word correctly. Immeasurability of this love. 
This chapter 3 is the midpoint of Ephesians. The letter divides, divides into uh, two equal parts. Chapters 1 through 3 is the first section. Chapters 4 through 6, the last section. Uh, and it shows, and everything is showing us the first, in the first section who we are, the second section how we should live. And so at this point, Paul's recapping. Paul ends this section in chapter 2 by saying that there's no more division between Jews and Gentiles, one of the most hotly ethnically divided people back in the day. He's saying, look, there's no more division. You can't hold on to that as your primary identity anymore. The wall has been destroyed. There's no more hostility. This new humanity that Paul says God is building is bringing together has one common identity marker, and that is Jesus. And together, we pursue Christ. His point is when we pursue Christ together, we erase dividing lines that we create. We will be together when we pursue Christ, a dwelling place of our God. And later he goes on in Corinthians and saying, that's when you become the temple. So the main division that Paul is seeking to solve is the one between Jews and Gentiles, this identity marker that they had. And he first says, there's no more of this. And then he goes on to this next chapter, Ephesians 3.1. For this reason, I... Uh, the reason that he's saying is that there's dividing lines. Uh, for, the, for the reason the dividing lines are gone, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it has been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy, by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Did you hear a word that popped up? Mystery. It pops up three times because in the next verse, and we'll get to there, it pops up again. It's a key word to understand, and the Greek word uh, is different from the English word for mystery. Uh, they don't necessarily mean the same thing. When we hear mystery, what do you think of? Murder, she wrote. Matlock, you think of dark and obscure movies. What's Dateline, where you're trying, you don't watch that at night by yourself, where they're trying to catch the killer. You think of the whodunits, right? This, this is, uh, that's what we think of mystery, something that's inexplicable, something that you're trying to figure out. It's a puzzle we're trying to solve. But the Greek word is mysterion. You want to say it? You should try it. Mysterion. I got another one for you that's really fun later, okay? The Greek word mysterion, it still means mystery, but it's a little different. It means something that is secret, but not a closely guarded one. It, it means the original word mysterion referred to a truth in which someone had been initiated to hear. Later, it takes on a connotation of like religious teachings that were once restricted to certain people, but now they're no longer restricted to anyone else. Think of what Paul is talking about, Jews and Gentiles, for once, that, that the Jews only knew what was happening, and it was a mysterion to the Gentiles. And now he's saying the Gentiles are brought in. It's mysterious in how they're there. But here, Paul, what Paul is getting at is that God's love and acceptance isn't locked away just for a tiny people group over in one section of the world or in one church or in one denomination. It's actually, its intention was to bring everybody in. This is the, the width of God's love. And that in itself is a mystery. How God does that, why God does that, we don't know. It's a mystery. And Paul, Paul admits this in verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel... 
the Gentiles are now heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together of the promise of Jesus Christ. Paul uses three words here that don't normally get used to, to solve a mystery. Together with Israel, members of one body, and shares of the promise. This is the mystery that Paul's trying to get, and this is the good news. The gospel, the fact that Jesus loves every single one of us, is mysterious that we're all invited into and understand. Everybody is in. This message was hidden, but now it's open. This message used to be reserved for one people group, but now it's open to all humanity. But it doesn't end there. The same love that Christ has for each of us is big enough to unite the two most divided people groups ever since the beginning of time. How does it do that? It's a mystery, but it does it. It's bigger than our divisions. And the kicker that Paul wants to get us is that that love is available to you. Why is it such a big mystery? Because in their mind, there's no way that God could ever love those people. And now he does. And it's a mystery to us because sometimes we feel in our life that there's no way that God can ever love you. But he does. Completely, fully, holy. Before you were anything else, you were loved and accepted. And sometimes that's a mystery for us in order to understand. This is beyond this, that we think that we're beyond redemption. We think that we're beyond loved. And for many of us, when we feel that way, we tend to go other places to find an identity. But Paul says, look, I don't understand how it works. I don't understand how God does it. Later, Paul will say, I'm the biggest sinner of them all. Yet for some reason, I'm completely loved. How many of us use Google to solve arguments? Yes? Nobody over here? You got it back there? Uh, I think that's the reason why Google was invented, to solve arguments. So say you're at a place and you go, how high is that mountain? And your buddy goes, 5,000 feet. And you go, no, it's got to be much taller. And so you hop on Google, right? The Google, the wonder killer. And you go, I wonder how tall is this mountain? It turns out it's 2,500 feet and you were both wrong. But we're, and everyone's wrong in that. But it seems like Paul is saying here, look, here's the mystery of God's love. If you were to Google the wealth of love that Christ has bestowed onto you, you would get 18 trillion results plus one. I learned what a Googleplex was the other day. You'd get that, much, that many results in 0.75 seconds, right? Because they like to tell you how fast they found it. You would get those results, and there's no possible way you would actually be able to understand, fathom, or read every single article that came back with your search. This is the mystery to God's love. That's how much love is for you. You might get to page five. But Paul says this, in the riches of God's, the riches of love that Jesus has for you is such a mystery, it's unsearchable. In verse eight, although I am less than least, than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. The word boundless carries with it this meaning of something which is unsearchable and un, un, untraceable. But if you tried, here's what you'd find. When, when we search the boundless meaning of God's love, you find that in that has the resurrection from the death of sin. We have victorious enthronement. We, have, we are with Christ. We are reconciled with God. We have the end of hostility, the beginning of peace. We have access to God through Christ by the Spirit. We have membership into his kingdom and his household. We have an integral part 
of his dwelling place. We have spiritual gifts. We have the glory of inheritance in which God has stored us, has in store for every single one of us. These are just markers of the love that he has for us. And there's so much more. This is just from the first two chapters of Ephesians. You can go into the other writings of Paul and find more. You can go to the entire book, uh, the other sections of Scripture, and you would have list after list after list. And this was Paul's intention, just to show you how much you are loved. Translators have tried to, to come up with words to describe this mystery. And so they have words like this, inexplorable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable. I don't know if that's really a word. Inscrutable, incalculable, infinite, or infinity plus one if you were my child. What Christ and what, what Christ has given to us and the love that he has for us never comes to an end. And so what Paul is trying to pound home to these Ephesians is stop trying to find your identity in other places. In Christ you are enough. In Christ you are gifted. You are loved, you are cared for, you are accepted more than you can ever imagine. And it's important we get this because what's coming next in the book is a bunch of instructions. As, as this book folds into two, Paul's told us who we are, and then he gets to what we should do. What we usually try to do is we fast forward and go, okay, what do I have to do to be accepted? And Paul's going, no, 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 no. You're already accepted, and you can't really do anything else until you realize this part first. Those things that we're supposed to do, how you and I are supposed to live. When you get to Ephesians 4, you're going to see a list of things that we should do. But those don't make you more loved. That is an outpouring of the love that you already have. And this should change us. We don't have to earn anything. And Paul is saying this, is, this needs to go move from the mystery of, of the love. We don't understand it but it's here and needs to sink down into the foundations. Look in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, Paul's praying a prayer that this love of Christ would be known to the deepest part of our lives. So he prays three steps in this prayer that lead us down to see where this love might take hold. The first step is that we would be strengthened in our inner being. He's praying that Christ would take residence in their lives, that the residence wouldn't be a temporary lodging, uh, but a permanent home, so that in those times of weakness, in those times of insecurity, uh, when, when everything turns on us, we can lean against the strength of the love of Christ. There's confidence in this strength because of this confidence in those times where we can run straight into his arms unafraid of anything that might happen to us, unafraid of judgment, unafraid of, of that he won't accept us because at each turn, when we come back, we are met with his love. We see this played out in the prodigal son. He's in the family. He goes and asks his dad for his inheritance, basically. Dad, I wish you were dead. Now give me my money. And he takes off and he squanders it. We've heard the story. It's pretty popular, right? And then he comes back. And what's the father do? Ah, oh, I've loved you enough. Nope. He runs to meet him. He's still loved no matter what that son has done. No matter what. 
is the love there. So in our times of weakness, and this is what Paul is trying to talk about, in our times of weakness, when we've failed, when we haven't measured up, we can come running back and what we find is that this love becomes our greatest strength because we can lean on it. Because when we know the depth of love, we know what a blessing and and what we don't what a blessing it is that you and I don't have to do things to save face anymore. We can drop the defenses. We can admit our failure. We can actually be weak. In some senses, it means that we are strong enough to be weak. We can dance knowing that we look like idiots when we do it. But God says, I don't care. You're dancing. And some of us might dance with a limp. It's okay. We dance with a limp. We meet, admit our failure. And the Spirit enables you to come back. This is what Paul is meaning in Corinthians when he says, in my weakness, I find strength. In my times of utter exhaustion, Paul says, he leans on the strength of God's love. And in this love, we find the next step that Paul wants to get, get us to. Paul mixes metaphors here. It's bot botanical and it's construction. The two go together somehow. We are rooted, Paul says, we are drawing life and nutrients from his love like roots do from, from the water, from the ground. So when the storm comes and the winds blow, we hold strong. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on this law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in, in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do prosper. The roots are deep. And when you're rooted in Christ's love, this is what Paul's getting at, your roots are deep and your roots are strong. And then he says, established, which is a construction term. He's meaning that our lives will be built uh, well on, this, on a foundation that when life comes and it shakes, rattles, and rolls, we're not going to blow over with a gust of wind. This is what Jesus alludes to in Matthew 7. It's easy to build a house on a weak foundation, but at the first sign of trouble, it's gone. Paul's prayer is that we are rooted in Christ's love, drawing nutrients from love, and that we are established on the non-shifting cornerstone of Christ. In both of these uh, cases, uns the unseen cause and the stability that we have comes from who Christ says we are. May it be the soil of our lives that we are actually rooted in, and may it be the foundation that we are actually built. Because here's the reality. When life hits, we try to find different ways to cope with insecurities rather than to be complete. We'd rather pop a pill or, or take a drink uh, we swipe left, or is it right, or is it up or down? We swipe, uh, we, we click share, we click like. Sometimes we visit the porn site, we have the hashtag of the latest trend, or we donate to a certain cause, or, or we make our profile picture a, a, a symbol of whatever the next thing is in order that we feel accepted, in order that we gain love, in order that we have an identity. And all of those things, and all of us are guilty of those, all they turn out to be is shallow roots and weak foundations. Because there's just one week later and you're going to have to find something else. They're coping mechanisms. They cover the symptoms that we have, but they don't deal with the actual problem. Paul says, stop coping here. Instead, be built and be rooted on the love that does not shake anymore. 
explore the depth of the mystery of the foundation that you are built upon. It takes time, but that's the only cure that we have. You can go on coping with doing whatever you have and and however you cope with things, but it's not going to last. It's a sandy foundation. And our lives weren't meant to cope. Our lives are meant to be strong. We're meant to be rooted. We're meant to be established. We're meant to know the love that Christ has for us so that we, in verse 18, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge, so that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. There's a lot here, but I want us to look at this one word that we're going to get nerdy with this word, okay? The word grasp. The word grasp actually means in the Greek to be ambushed. It's not an easy word to translate, so everybody tries to guess. But here's the word, ready? You'll want to say it. Catalambano. I said it wrong. Catalambano. There it is. Catalambano. Is that a coffee? It's a coffee you can get at Starbucks. It's a venti. (laughs) Catalambano. You want to try it? Try it. It's a cata. Steve, there you go. It means grasp, but that's how it's translated here. But it's also ambushed. It's, it's usually not a good thing to be ambushed, but the way Paul says it is he wants you to be ambushed by something. He wants you to be caught off guard. He wants you to go, whoa, wasn't expecting that. And it's also, you never really get a hold of it. You're trying constantly to get your arms around it, and you're, and you're surprised on how big it is. He uses it in 1 Thessalonians. He says, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you. Surprise there is the catalambano, that, it may, that, that this day should not catch you off guard because you're ready for it. It amazes you. It jumps out at you. It surrounds you and captures you so that you're surprised by it. However, it's also used in this intellectual state. For example, in Acts 10, Peter's having bacon for the first time, and he's caught is about how wonderful it tastes. But he's also caught off guard by something else. He's having dinner with a Gentile. And he says this, Now I realize, there's the surprised, caught off guard, that God doesn't play favorites. Now I caught the Lombano that God loves everybody. What Peter here says, I'm shocked, I'm thunderstruck, I'm amazed. And the truth, I really didn't know for Peter, it's come and it's ambushed me. It knocked the wind out of my sails in the best way. I'm thunderstruck. The truth has conquered me. I'll never forget this moment. I'll never be the same again. This is what he's saying. So Paul here is saying, Christians, you know that God loves you. Great. That's the bumper sticker. But I want you to fully grasp this so that you will be thunderstruck by it. I want you to be conquered by it. I want you to be ambushed by how big it is. I want you to be amazed about this love that God has for you. To experience this love, we have to go back. To genuinely experience it, we have to be rooted and grounded, strengthened, and then we'll be amazed on how deep, how wide, and how far this love goes for us. And when you experience this, when you understand that you're fully whole, that you're fully accepted, you won't fall for coping mechanisms much longer. 
Once you realized and tasted the real deal, you don't want to fall for the substitutes. Once you look back on your photographs in your life and you realize how deeply you are loved, you won't go looking for false love to compete with the love that you already have because it will never compete. You don't need anything else. You don't need anything less. You don't need another degree. You don't, you don't la- you lack nothing. Paul says in Romans that there is nothing that could ever separate you from the love of God. And because of this, this completes you and everything about you, we are able to do immeasurably more than what we think we can. Remember those pictures I was looking at? As I'm looking through them, I'm being reminded of all the ways people know me and people have loved me completely. And I remember I asked myself, if I would have had these in junior high or college, uh, when I was hurt and I recoiled into bad habits or into myself, uh, if, I, if I would have seen those pictures then, how would I have been different? When those days come and those people tell you you're not enough or the temptation in your head to cope comes because you're telling yourself you're not enough, that's when your imagination is stifled. That's when your calling is, is limited because we allow those words to come in and create doubt in our lives and question the completeness that we already have in Christ. Because of this, because of those things, when we question our love status, we think we're not good enough. And so we start telling ourselves we're just sinners. But this is what Paul is saying. You're loved more than you could ever imagine. And if you can just grasp this, the coping mechanisms won't be so attractive anymore. Paul is imagining, wants us to imagine, and he's imagining, a God is able, who is able to do uh, immeasurably more than the limitations that we put on ourselves. Here's the verse he says. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. Now who's the one putting the limits on God in that verse? We are. Is God putting limits on him? No. Is God putting limits? Are we put, who's putting the limits on what we can accomplish in God? We are. The limits for God is the sky's the limit. Anything. Once we're rooted and grounded in love, we can accomplish things because we don't care what other people might say about us. Why? Our identity is secure. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine according to his power that is at work with us. To him be the glory of the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Paul's praying a prayer here. God's ideas for what you can do are immeasurably larger than anything that you could ever imagine. Once you're rooted and grounded in the soil of his love, you'll be like the tree in Psalm 1 that has fruit every season, that is strong, that doesn't waver when the winds blow because you are secure. God's good at doing things like this. Think about it. He called a couple in their 90s to give birth to a nation. Everybody wrote that family off. God says, I can do more. Don't let them limit you. Don't let them limit you by limiting me. Don't let them do that. He called an orphan to lead an exodus. He imagines uh, uh, the runt of the family named David to kill a giant and become the greatest king Israel has ever seen. He uses a small army uh, led by Gideon to liberate a nation. He calls upon a young virgin to give birth to his only son. He calls fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, and he entrusts them with the message and they change the entire world. 
God has a pretty great imagination. He forgives a man who betrayed him, denied him three times, and says, upon you, Peter, because I love you so much, I'm going to build this church. We're going to change the world. He enlists a man named Saul, someone who was trying to wipe out the message of Christ to become the chief messenger of Christ all the way to Rome. And he calls you. What limits have you put on yourself because you think you're not good enough? Where have you stifled the imagination of what God might do? Well, I made that mistake back when I was 13 years old. We all did. You remember that, but guess what? God doesn't. His love sees past that. Oh, but I, I'm divorced. Oh, but I cheated. Oh, but I'm an addict. Oh, but I, I don't come to church every week. Oh, this, this. We have a list of things. They said I'm dumb. They say I'm slow. They say I'm this. And you start taking on this identity that stifles what God actually says about you. And then we start believing a lie. Because God looks at you and goes, I don't care. I love them completely. And when we become shaped by this love, we can step into whatever God calls us to do with the confidence that there's nothing that could ever shake us from that. I mentioned before that uh, junior high was, was a tough time. It's a tough time for everyone. I would rather blot it out of my imagination from sixth grade to about ninth grade. I was five foot, and, uh, and I barely lift 60 pounds. True story. And so that time, I, I've grown since, and I can lift a lot more. But, uh, but in that time was rough. And in that time, what my parents instilled in me, mom and dad, said, hey, they're going to make fun of you, don't believe them. And they modeled for me the type of love that God has for me, that no matter what everyone says, I'm still good. I might not wear the cool pants, I might not have the Air Jordan shoes, because I really wanted them, but, I, but I, don't, I might not have all of that. I might not fit in with the standards of what makes a cool person, but I'm loved. And my identity is secure. My identity does not rely on what the cool kids at the lunch table say about me. In, some, in many ways, you and I are just grown-up middle schoolers, and now we, we base our identities on what everyone else says, and the truth still remains. It doesn't matter what other people might think about you. Why? Because God loves you completely, fully. With all of your hang-ups, with all of your put-downs, He calls you. Imagine what he wants to do with you once you've imagined it. Now expand your imagination by five, and you might still be a little bit off. God still has that imagination for you. And he has quite the method to do it. You might think you're weak. Weak is the new strong, according to God. All this to say, because you are already full, complete in Christ, you're capable of much more than you can imagine. And I have echo Paul's prayer. He says, live fully into who you already are, loved, complete, and whole. And may we never stop walking around the house of our heart, seeing the pictures of how much God loves us hanging on the wall of our lives. May each day be a picture frame, and may we be surprised that it's still hanging there. 
May you know the fullness of the fullness that's in you. And with tears in your eye, hang the photo of God who thinks the world of you next to the other photos. And you could say that your picture is framed on his wall too. You have a God who's proud of you, whose name is written on his hand. That's what Ezekiel says. It's engraved in his heart. It's sealed with his blood. And he shouts it from the rooftop after the resurrection. All this so that you may live knowing that head to toe, your identity is secure in who you are. What would it look like today for you to accept that invitation? As you walked in, maybe you got another response card. How are you going to live differently now, knowing that you are completely loved? What false identities must we give up in order to grab on or begin to grasp the true identity of who you are? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us completely, wholly, fully, no matter what happens, no matter what we've done, no matter what we've said, no matter what we've believed in the past. You love us even though we doubt you. (laughs) We doubt your existence, but you don't doubt ours. And so God, today, may we begin just to grasp a corner of the love that you have for us. That we might not be identified by the world's way of identifying things. Rich, poor, employed, not, (laughs) out of debt, deep in debt. That's not how you identify us. You see us as loved. You see us as your kids. And there's nothing that we can do that can ever separate that from us. So God, would you wipe the failures away from our identity? Would you wipe uh, the definitions of what is good away from our identity? So we may be rooted in the truest. We could say, hi, I'm, I'm loved by God. Before anything else, I'm loved by you. And in Jesus' name.